Memphis. I hope you had a wonderful socially distant holiday with your loved ones and maybe even had some yummy food. Yes, I did cook up a few side dishes. My boyfriend and I um, did a little bit of something in the kitchen. Uh, but here we are another Saturday morning together and I'm so excited that you all are here with me. This is Let's Grab Coffee with Sanaa and we're on WYXR 91.7 FM. And don't forget, you can always tune in online at WYXR.org. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So throughout the past several years, we've seen major headlines about immigration. So thinking about, you know, changes in immigration policies, debates about immigration and pathways to citizenship, and then just general questions about who should be allowed to enter the U.S. and under what conditions. Now, these same questions have resurfaced this year as well and will likely continue to shape our national conversation. But the reality is that on average, folks know very little about immigration processes outside of, you know, these very salacious headlines or just political pundits sound bites. So I wanted to take a deeper dive into this very important topic. And to do that, today I have Dr. Kati Barahona-Lopez joining us. Dr. Barahona-Lopez is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Her work examines the effects of criminal and immigration law on the lives of youth in the United States. Her current solo project focuses on Central American and Mexican youth's engagement with the law, and it shows us the way that the law is the codification of mainstream U.S. desire with respect to the immigration legal system and criminal justice system. This emotional or effective component of immigration law and the criminal justice system justifies the continued use of punitive institutions, determines who is worthy of punishment or relief, and reinforces the status quo. She is also currently working with Jerry Flores on a collaborative project that examines the ways incarceration shapes the mental health of youth and teachers who work in systems of confinement. And this work has been published in Critical Criminology and the International Journal of Educational Development. So welcome, Dr. Barahona Lopez. We are so happy to have you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Sana, for um, having me today here. I'm very, very excited to talk with you. Yes, I'm so excited to have you. And before we get started, I just want to know, because I know that you're in Wisconsin and a lot of my family is there. Uh, my dad has been telling me, you know, that you all already had your first snow, or at least in his part of Wisconsin, they already had the first snow. <laughs> so I'm wondering, have Definitely you had? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it is currently snowing right now. So that is, um, yeah, that's an intense moment for us. But I, you know, I have, I'm from California, and my family and I are from California. So we haven't really experienced snow. Um, we're from San Francisco. And so this is like, we would have to drive to snow. And so now the fact that we live in snow is a pretty big deal. And it started snowing in October. Um, but thankfully, it's gotten hot and it's like warmed up. I mean, gotten hot is relative. <laughs> <laughs> 
for folks, uh, for me, I'm like, oh, it's still really cold. But um, yeah, I think it's it's been really interesting. So it's, you know, it's supposed to snow. And then I think that now the snow will actually stick to the ground. And, you know, we will now have snow on the ground for the foreseeable future. Yes, you will have all the snow for all of the holidays. <laughs> so that will be exciting. You know, in Memphis, we don't get a whole lot of snow. We do get ice. Um, but of course, we also don't know how to act in snow or ice. So at least you're in a place where people, you know, know what to do and can, you know, handle the weather. Oh, totally. I think it's just been so great because so many folks have reached out to us and have given us their pro tips on how to live in snow. Mm -hmm. So it's been really nice because we literally have no idea what we're doing. Well, I'm glad that you're hanging in there and have a lot of, you know, friendly neighbors or just like help to get you through this first season of snow. Definitely. So yes, so I'm so happy that you're here with me this morning. Um, I'm really excited to talk about immigration and your research. Um, I think that immigration is an important topic that in general we just need to know more about because it's so much a part of the conversation that's happening in the news. It's so much a part of policy that's happening. But in general, I think most people are just completely at a loss for really understanding what the immigration process is. So I'm very excited to have you and I know that both myself and our listeners will learn so much today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it's interesting because, you know, uh, even folks that have gone through the immigration adjustment process or who have had contact with the immigration um, system, they um, have no idea how large and how expansive and how changing the system really is. You know, I think about my parents, you know, my parents went through immigration adjustment in the 90s when they became citizens and their their experience was completely different from the experiences that um that the youth that I, you know, the unaccompanied minors that I conducted my research project on experience. And so because of that, because of the ever-changing nature of the immigration system, it is important for us to continue to um, do research and investigation because it's, it is ever-changing, right? And so something that I am constantly, you know, flabbergasted by is that, you know, during the um, Obama and Trump administrations, the ways that the immigration system changed um, was super uh, fluid and dramatic. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I conducted the majority of my research during the Obama administration. And then um, I trans, uh, part of my research covered the Trump administration. And during the time that I was doing that, I was conducting research during the Trump administration, you know, things would be so fluid and so changing that there would be times where, you know, an executive order would be, um, you know, handed out and, you know, what that meant was, you know, confusing for everyone, not just for, you know, folks that were experiencing the immigration adjustment process or the immigration system, right? So folks that were in immigration um, proceedings, but also for attorneys, for paralegals, for, you know, judges, there was just like so much that would have to, you know, realign because our immigration system is just so, um, 
it, it has so many components and so many parts, different systems govern it. And oftentimes when you're talking about the immigration system, you really have to look um, specifically at the population and the specific experiences of the individuals, right, that are experiencing um, a particular set of immigration policies or procedures. So I definitely think that, you know, for a lot of us, when we think of the immigration system, you know, it's just like, are people documented? Are people undocumented? Mm -hmm. And we forget that there's an entire spectrum that exists, you know, and that has happened not just in this particular moment in our history, but over the course of U.S. history. So it's just something that um, I'm constantly you know, even now after, you know, completing my um, field work, I am constantly, you know, learning about the changes that have happened in the immigration system, especially during COVID-19 and the ways that it has, you know, really impacted young people. Yes, absolutely. So we'll get into some of that in a second, especially thinking about the impact of COVID on immigration processes. But I want to take a moment um, to pause where you said, you know, most people, they think about just this idea of are you documented or are you undocumented as if that's kind of the only thing, right? Um, So what should people really, what else should we be thinking about when it comes to immigration adjustment and just the immigration process itself? Yeah, so we should be thinking about the immigration system as a continuum, um, not just as undocumented or documented, but rather as um, as you, e- even when you are a U.S. citizen, you are still in contact with the immigration system, right? So from the moment that you enter the United States until basically you die, <laughs> Um, If you are an immigrant, you are going to have contact with the immigration system. Um, And so your immigration status can change over the course of your lifetime, given um, a wide range of um, experiences that you will have. Um, And I think that this is best... you know, thought about when we think about, you know, somebody who has like, for example, temporary protected status, which um, right now, and if, if, if your listeners are, are, you know, what, like asking themselves, what is temporary protected status? What is TPS? It's actually a status that was given um, to people who had experienced natural disasters. So people from Haiti and people from El Salvador, people from Nicaragua, they um, have this, the status that every 18 months, you know, they're required to renew. And that gives them the ability to work um, in the United States and have a work permit. And they are legally able to live their lives here in the United States. Um, And what this means, but that doesn't mean that they have a pathway to citizenship. So somebody who has temporary protected status, unless something else in their lives change to allow them to be able to adjust their immigration status, they will not be able to, um, to become U.S. citizens. They won't be able to become permanent residents. So they'll continue to have to, um, you know, renew their uh, TPS for the rest of their lives. And, um, you know, I think that what's so difficult about folks under folks understanding this process is that you know some people like I have family members who have TPS and they've had it since they were in their 20s and now they're you know in their 40s and they have kids and they have families they have jobs they have businesses you know and they are still unable to find a path 
to being able to become a permanent resident um, or to, you know, to become a citizen. And that really creates challenges for them about, you know, how they think about their stability here in the United States. So when we think about the immigration system, we're oftentimes, you know, the information that we're given about, you know, how people become U.S. citizens or how they become permanent residents um, or even just where they are in their immigration process, it's very confusing because you, that's not the language that we're accustomed to. We're only accustomed to thinking about people as either being undocumented or being citizens. Um, and we forget that people exist in this continuum. So one thing that I encourage people to think about is how our immigration system, especially in this particular moment in our history, has so many different categories in order to, you know, think about people in very specific moments in their immigration process. Um, and so that helps us think about how if you're immigrate, if we can think about our immigration process as like a two year process, or, you know, a process that when folks are renewing their TPS, it's like, you know, a six month process that during that time period, there's specific moments where your immigration status could potentially change for a variety of reasons. Um, and so you could be undocumented for a very short moment in your, in your life, you know, for your paperwork purposes, but not for, you know, your official immigration system purposes. Um, and I think that that reality is something that is very difficult for folks to understand because, um, you know, especially during the Trump administration, we were seeing long, long periods of renewal. Um, folks were really experiencing challenges and difficulties with renewing their statuses and um, th that they hadn't experienced during, you know, Bush or Obama. Um, and this really shaped people, this really made people aware of the way in which this immigration status continuum really exists in the lives of people and really shapes their experiences, you know. So um, just to give you a really brief example, you know, folks that were, you know, folks that had TPS and were renewing, there was this really long debate in California that was happening because in California, folks um, are able to get their drivers, folks who have TPS have their driver's license, but it's connected to their um, uh, social security work permit. And so when your social security work permit is about to expire, you have to come back in and demonstrate that you've been able to renew. Now, the problem was that um, for purposes of immigration, there was like this fine print that said that you could have six, a six, an automatic six month extension. But for, for the DMV, that wasn't what they needed. They needed the actual paperwork that said that folks had been able to renew their status. So this created challenges, right? So on one hand, folks are definitely not undocumented for the purposes of immigration. They told, they are able to work. Um, and immigration recognizes the, you know, the automatic six month extension extension as valid, but for the people, uh, you know, who are processing their driver's license or who are, you know, looking at their paperwork to ensure that they are able to to work in the United States with a valid social security number, this created these challenges. And so many people um, who had TPS really had to 
think about the ways in which they presented the, the documents that um, they were that they had in order to create those justifications and that meant that in some some moments people felt you know that they weren't fully documented in the way that they were accustomed to um, and so there was a slippage that was happening in these moments um that a lot of people just aren't aware of um and that's kind of how our immigration system has always worked but i think in this particular moment it's just more it's highlighted a bit more mm -hmm. absolutely i love this idea of thinking about immigration um, as this continuum and getting away from this very kind of stark binary of documented undocumented and trying to find the language for really understanding the complexities the ever-changing complexities of the immigration process and i think it can be very difficult for people who are removed um, from the process who maybe don't have an intimate understanding of immigration adjustment or the immigration legal system to understand it um, not to mention the people who are actually going through it and trying to keep track of the ever-changing you know policies or executive orders yeah totally i think that you know as you were as you were talking i was thinking a lot about how you know in a lot of families when you're when you're talking about like how things have changed and how they're constantly changing and how you know at, at a particular moment in time things look different um you know i see this in in families especially in, in families that have you know mixed immigration statuses and, and what that means is not just like families that have documented and undocumented folks but families where you know maybe parents have tps maybe one child has permanent residency because they've been able to you know they've grown up here in the united states and they've married you know their their um, partner and their partner is a u.s citizen and so they are able to have a pathway to citizenship and then they have you know maybe some kids that their kids are u.s citizens because they were born here and in those families oftentimes um, and there's a lot of other configurations which you know we don't we don't have time to talk about but you know in mixed status families a lot of times family members themselves um, are very confused about each other's immigration status and have a very difficult time um, providing con like concrete sort of support and help. Um, and sometimes that support and help is also misleading because different people experience the immigration system at different points in time. And so there's, there's misconceptions about what today's immigration system looks like. Um, and I think that that's really challenging. Uh, I can just you know, for many people, you know, having an attorney, an immigration attorney is expensive, it's cost prohibitive. Um, and so they're constantly trying to figure out if the immigration attorney that they've hired is a good immigration attorney or is going to, you know, ensure that their immigration case um, is successful. And a lot of the things that they may be hearing from family members or from people on the outside are conflicting with what their immigration attorney may be saying. And part of the reason for this is because many families experience immigration, their immigration processes at different moments in time. And so what was possible and uh, legitimate and totally workable in the the Bush administration is was not in the Obama administration and um, was not in the Trump administration. And so I think that something that is really important for us to think about when we're thinking about immigration and not just immigration statuses, but 
the way in which immigration works is that administ that the presidency right has so much um, power over the processes that immigrants experience right and so it's so important to remember that things change very rapidly in immigration law and immigration system they change and yet they stay the same um, and so it's important to remember that piece that there are things that have been long-standing systems that we we for I mean that the United States immigration system doesn't change um, and then there's things that change quite frequently so that's just something I wanted to also mention Mm -hmm. um, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk more about some of these changes in the immigration process. So you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and we're here with Dr. Kati Barahona-Lopez, an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and we're talking about the immigration process. And I know previously, before the break, we were talking about the many changes in um, immigration um, due to a variety of different reasons. But what comes to mind, and I'm sure what comes to mind of a lot of listeners, is 9-11. Um, as a very big turning point, at least in our, you know, kind of more recent history as it pertains to immigration and immigration processes. And I know you've talked about um, this idea of self-disclosure and the expectations we have of immigrants in general to self-disclose um, in order to enter the U.S., particularly after 9-11. So could you tell us more about what you mean by self-disclosure self and what these expectations are? Yeah, so <clears throat> what I mean by self-disclosure is, you know, really having to talk to um, immigration uh, officials and then also anybody that's connected with the immigration legal system um, about your experiences um, in order for you to be able to qualify for some form of immigration relief. Mm -hmm. um, so most notably, people talk about this particular, um, you know, issue when we talk about asylum. Um, and, you know, I... I think that self-disclosure is something that we think about only within the immigration legal realm, and we forget the ways in which when, when folks are coming to the United States, when they've, you know, been, when they've come to the United States and then they've been in systems of incarceration um, or in systems of detention because they've come into the United States through um, a border, right, um, or through um, through like the U.S.-Mexico uh, border or through the U.S.-Canada border, you know, they're often um, detained for a period of time. Um, and so when they're, when they're able to exit detention, they are usually, you know, coming to come with a family member or, you know, a, a guardian, perhaps if they're a child or a youth. And this is where it gets more complicated because, in our in the United States, the ways in which we think about accessing resources and explaining just things that don't often align, right? Um, so, like even thinking about you know having to enroll you know your your 15 year old into school in the middle of december like you you know most most school districts are wondering why this is happening you know and folks are feeling really compelled to provide very detailed narratives to be able to explain 
one and one of the reasons that they're experiencing this is because during their immigration during their um during the time in which they were in immigration detention there was this expectation um that they disclose as much information as possible to be able to <clears throat> meet the criteria to um, be eligible for some form of relief, right? Mm -hmm. um, or to be uh, to be in a position where some form of relief could potentially be um, eligible for, they could potentially be eligible for some form of relief. And I think that this experience um, shapes the ways in which folks interact with outside institutions and the ways in which um, for many people, this uh, doesn't just become something that, um, you know, immigrant families or immigrants are doing to be able to access resources or to be able to explain, you know, their situation, but it becomes a way in which it legitimizes um, their, uh, their presence or their requests. Um, and so... I think that that is extremely dangerous because oftentimes what we're doing is we're requiring, right, a re-traumatization of individuals by having them explain over and over again um, specific traumas or challenges or difficulties that they experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes we think about, you know, it, when, when, when folks have talked about, you know, the ways in which these narratives have you know, impacted people, they often focus on, you know, <clears throat> the preparation that their immigration attorney mm -hmm. or their immigrate and their immigration paralegal um, does with the with the individual or with the family around their immigration case. And we forget that um, they are not just in an immigration system, that that is not the only system that they're experiencing. They're also experiencing the healthcare system, the education system, right? Um, you know, there, there may be other resources that they need, right? Or other, um, you know, components that are necessary in their lives to be able to live their day-to-day -day lives. And so it becomes a way, right? It becomes a, 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 a process that um, youth and families have to talk about constantly. Um, and, you know, the way that I think about this is, you know, when I think about having to talk about something that was extremely challenging for me, mm -hmm. I think about how for most people, you know, we can count on our fingers the number of times that we've been, you know, pushed by someone to really talk about these very challenging very painful things mm -hmm. um and we will we don't willingly discuss them um but for many immigrants they are constantly being asked to discuss this um and i think that oftentimes you know social services or you know admit school administrators or you know folks that work with immigrants they will say well you know people just want to tell me their story and I really pushed back <laughs> with that because after, you know, doing my research, I found that for most, um, especially, you know, I, I, um, I conducted my research with unaccompanied minors, with youth that had come to the United States without their parent or guardian. Um, and for most of them, they discussed the ways in which it was 
emotionally exhausting having to have having to just talk about what occurred or having to think about what they could say that would be enough but wouldn't expose too much um or you know being in situations where they felt like what they had disclosed wasn't enough and so they felt like they had to continue to disclose more and more and more and i think that oftentimes people say well you know they have a choice they have autonomy they have agency and they get to make decisions about what they want to say or not say and i think that that's really not um an accurate statement in in terms of thinking about how the immigration legal system, how their first contact with um, with immigration officials, you know, when they are in detention, how it really shapes the ways in which they think about American systems and American bureaucracies, and the ways in which these narratives are part of um, being able to access resources, being able to, um, you know, uh, enter these um, systems and these um, institutions that are necessary for them to um, to not only <clears throat> continue with their immigration case, but also to be able to have a strong immigration case. Um, and so I, you know, I'm always thinking about self-disclosure. Um, and I think that this is a relatively new um, new way of thinking about it as existing not only in the immigration legal system, but also in the ways in which, you know, the immigration legal system touches all of these other institutions and how it affects these other institutions that we oftentimes don't connect with the immigration legal system. Absolutely. I think this just goes back to what you were saying about thinking in, in the beginning about thinking about immigration on a continuum. So not even just thinking about immigration adjustment on a continuum, but then thinking about immigration and its many effects on a continuum as well. So not just the actual act of, you know, immigration legal proceedings, but here thinking about, as you mentioned, whether it's education or other social services, healthcare, thinking about all the other ways that immigration uh, really affects what is happening in these other systems, uh, the amount of resources that people are able to access. And as I was listening to you explain this, it really made me think about when I was working in social services and how we would, you know, interview. And I worked with um, children and families. So even just thinking about that interview process of the amount of disclosure that was you know, expected in those instances as well. And the right that people have to not want to disclose some very personal information, um, but yet how it is often the case that people are trying to humanize folks by really, um, I don't, I want to say ex exploitation is the first word that comes to my mind, but like exploiting that trauma in order to feel like, oh, this person is worthy of receiving, you know, this service or this resource. Um, and I know you talked about that as well, this idea of, you know, desire um, in relation to, you know, who is worthy of relief, you know, as well. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I am really interested in the way in which the immigration legal system really accentuates our desire for these narratives. Um, and <clears throat> I would say that, you know, especially in the, you know, when we think about the United States and we think about how in our current moment, we, you know, we talk about it as 
a melting pot, as a land of the free, as a place where, you know, people are able to ex escape persecution, that there is a desire for the individuals that come into the United States to be perceived as exceptional, right? And, and part of this is, you know, what happens in, in um, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, right? Um, but it's also part of the ways in which we've justified um, you know, folks being able to adjust their immigration status. And so um, when I talk about desire, I'm, I'm really thinking about, you know, something that that happens even outside of the immigration system. So, um, you know, you were talking about social services, but, you know, I, I often times think about um, how, you know, I might, I myself, uh, you know, grew up in, you know, a working class neighborhood, and I was part of a youth program. And part of that youth program's mission was to support first generation college students. So I'm a first generation college student, my parents didn't go to college. Mm -hmm. And um, part of what would happen is that every, every couple of years, we'd have, you know, a funder or someone come come into the program and they would ask us questions about our family and our experiences. And we had to provide this narrative about our particular circumstances and how this program was, you know, filling that gap, right? And to prove that this, you know, that this program was working. And I oftentimes think about the ways in which this is replicated and, and, you know, in the systems that we think about as charitable, right, we have this expectation that we want, you know, the, the money or the resources that we're giving to people to be justified or to be like, um, you know, to be used correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and we oftentimes forget that that is about our own desires, right? It's about what we would pr prefer for folks to be using the resource or the, you know, the, the, this system for. Um, and I um, think a lot about how in our immigration system, you know, it is more palatable to justify um, adjusting an immigrant's status, you know, because there are a lot of immigrants that are currently in the immigration system, right? So many of those individuals will have their immigration case denied. Um, and that is the reality. We, we oftentimes don't think about the people that will get denied their immigration status be, because of the system of, you know, making sure that, you know, the, our current immigration system that only wants <clears throat> to um, adjust the immigration status of individuals who have experienced these highly traumatized, highly challenging situations. And mm -hmm. that means that many folks that have experienced challenging and, and traumatizing situations, but that don't meet the legal criterias will be um, Will, will not be able to um, adjust their immigration status and will lose their case and will be deported back to their country of origin. Um, and so really, it there is a way in which the narratives um, that people tell about their experiences, about the challenges that they experience, that, excuse me, that there's a way in which <clears throat> the more challenging, the more salacious, the more difficult that those narratives are, the more legitimacy it provides to the immigration system to continue to accept um, these immigration cases, to continue to approve these immigration cases. 
and to continue to um, to process these immigration system, immigration cases. And we oftentimes these are the you know the the ones that are most challenging, most difficult, um, you know, most heart wrenching are the ones that we oftentimes hear on television, on radio shows, you know, on you know when folks are fighting for the immigration legal system to to function in a particular way. <clears throat> these are often the stories that we're hearing. And, um, and, and there's a reason for that, because there's a desire from the larger American population to have these, to have these stories, to, to, to feel, to feel pity for people, you know, I, I oftentimes think about the difference between feeling pity and feeling empathy. And, you know, when we have pity for someone, we think, oh, poor them. And when we have empathy, we think, well, what would it be like for me to be in, the, in this person's shoes? And um, we don't oftentimes think about what would it be like for me to be in this person's shoes when it comes to immigration. We think, oh, poor them. This is a legitimate reason for them to be in um, our be in the United States and for them to be able to adjust their immigration status. So. I definitely think that, you know, what we're seeing nowadays with the expansion of these narratives of suffering or of vulnerability existing outside of the immigration system and not just in, you know, an asylum case <clears throat> or a refugee case is really about how, you know, our immigration system has touched so many other institutions and how these institutions themselves have either had this history of needing these types of narratives of vulnerability and suffering or have adopted these narratives of vulnerability and suffering, right? So I oftentimes think about how, you know, I talked a little bit about, you know, people enrolling their children into their, you know, local public schools. I, I think that, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, <clears throat> you know, someone who came in and enrolled their, their child would maybe not have felt compelled to provide a very uh, detailed narrative about why they were enrolling their child in January instead of, you know, in, in um, June or July or August, right before the school, um, the school uh, year started. But I think that now we're seeing, you know, more and more um, folks that are in immigration legal proceedings feel that they have to create this justification. Um, and, you know, I think importantly, we have to remember that they feel it because they're being asked questions by the people in positions of power that are eliciting those responses. So if you think about how, you know, in that process or in, in, in that moment when you're enrolling your child, you know, someone's asking you, well, why didn't you some, you know, why, why didn't you enroll them, you know, during the summer mm -hmm. having to answer that, but then asking them, you know, why is this paperwork not translated? Um, so, you know, oftentimes uh, parents may bring school records from their children um, in uh, their language of the country of origin, and it's not translated. So, you know, these, these, um, the education system asks questions that sort of elicit these responses. Um, and I think it's oftentimes something that we don't consider. We don't, we don't think about the entire system um, or the entire process as these key moments in which, you know, after question two or three, you know, a person may feel compelled to provide this longer narrative of what has occurred to create justification and to, you know, in some ways to stop answering all of those questions because they just don't 
want to. They want to get the process over and done with, and they just want to do what they've come to this office to do. And, um, you know, we oftentimes forget that, you know, folks are taking time out of their day um, to out of their workday to be able to complete these processes. Many, um, many folks, you know, don't have access to paid vacation leave or paid um, paid sick leave time. And so it's really a, a hardship for folks um, to be engaging in these processes at these particular moments in time. And yet this is the only time that is available for them. So um, thinking about the system more as processes and not just as this one moment in time. Absolutely. And I think this, what you said about narratives is so key. Our ex expectation of a certain type of narrative in order to make their, these experiences more legible and to fit into kind of our existing framework of understanding immigration, immigration adjustment. And I want to talk more about some of these narratives, um, but let's take a break and then we'll talk more about it when we return. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. So we're back. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and we're here with Dr. Kati Barahona-Lopez, and we're talking about immigration. And before the break, we were talking about some of these different narratives and how our own kind of media contributes to the narratives that we expect and the narratives that we really react to. And it just made me think about, you know, this year, a couple of headlines about immigration and what these narratives might be telling or how we, it might be shaping um, what we think about immigration and immigrants and just the immigration process overall. So in particular, I'm thinking about um, just a couple months ago in September. September, um, the forced sterilization case that happened in um, a detention center in Georgia. And in that case, um, Don Wooten, who was a nurse at that immigration detention center, filed a whistleblower complaint um, talking about the lack of medical care, the unsafe work practices, particularly in conjunction to COVID-19, but then also um, that immigrant women were receiving these questionable hysterectomies, right? Um, so can you tell us more about, you know, what this case tells us about immigration and immigration processes kind of overall? Yeah, so, um, you know, first of all, I think that we just have to recognize Don Wooten, this, um, you know, Black woman who's working in this detention center was extremely, um, strong in order to file this whistleblower complaint because I think that you know folks oftentimes think oh well you just file a complaint and it's it's done but it's actually such a long process right and especially at centers of confinement or detention or immigration detention centers like this is an extreme um it, it goes through many layers right so I think that first we just have to just pause and take stock of the fact that, you know, she was willing to, um, to file this whistleblower co um, complaint in a place and in a time where, you know, many of these complaints would just be, you know, completely thrown out or wouldn't be given legitimacy. But something that did happen was that the media got a hold of this complaint. And that is why we know about it. So I, I think that it's important for us to just take that and remember that. Um, and I also think it's important for us to remember that, you know, forced sterilization is something that has happened throughout our immigration legal system process, right? So it's not a new 
uh, it's not a new phenomenon, but rather it is something that um, has happened in our immigration history. Um, and uh, unfortunately, forced sterilization, especially under the eugenics movement, was seen as a as the way to control our population to ensure that you know folks. <clears throat> that were immigrants and that were coming into the United States wouldn't have more children, right? And so really um, thinking about the ways in which women's bodies have really been shaped by the immigration legal system and how the immigration legal system has, you know, engaged in this process before. Um, I, I think that what's really important to think about in this um, particular case um, that happened in Georgia is that you know, because these women um, are in um, in an immigration detention center, that they are extremely vulnerable because at any point in time they can experience deportation, and that's what we've seen um, in this particular case. Is that many of the women that had um, forced forced um, sterilization or who had you know uh, procedures um, that they didn't that they were unaware of or that they deemed um, you know. Uh, inappropriate based on where they were in their lives and what they wanted, right? Because I think it's important to remember that we need to center what these women wanted, right? Um, and these women did not want a hysterectomy. These women did not want these procedures to be performed on them, right? But many of them have now been deported back to their country of origin. And because of COVID-19, it is extremely difficult to get into contact with these women, to follow up with them and continue to um, conduct this, in this investigation. And so I think that part of the thing that occurs with, um, you know, folks that are in detention centers is that they are deported. They are easily, you know, moved and, um, you know, they, they fall into these systems of, um, you know, movement of, of deportation, of, of being no longer in our immigration um, system. And that it's unfortunate because many of these women, you know, have a legitimate case now to adjust their immigration status based on the treatment that they received in this detention center, which I feel like no one wants to talk about. You know, if we want to talk about suffering, if we want to talk about the ways in which a state has, you know, um, performed harm on individuals. Well, this is that case, you know, this is, you know, the thing that, you know, folks are always, you know, trying to make the connection about the ways in which, you know, our immigration detention centers, um, you know, perform these forms of harm. And yet these women are, because of the process, because of the immigration system that, in the, the way that it works, many of these women are not, not going to be able to file their claims. They're not going to be able to go through the immigration adjustment process. They're not going to even be able to, you know, confront this doctor who performed these hysterectomies, right? Um, and he will, you know, escape legal, um, uh, legal proceedings, right? Criminal legal proceedings, because there are no witnesses to, there are fewer witnesses to this case than were there present before. And the immigration, um, immigration legal system is not, that doesn't have any uh, systems in place to really deal with individuals that have, you know, made complaints against the actual facility or, you know, the, the individuals that are working in these facilities um, and flagging those as, you know, areas that 
or places that are necessary to stop in, um, deportation, right? Uh, and unless you have an attorney that is with you and that knows, you know, that this is a legitimate form, that this then creates a legitimate form of adjustment and, and, and of review, then, you know, folks are not going to be able to, um, you, you know, fight their immigration case. Um, and I think that this is also something that we see, we've seen throughout, you know, throughout our immigration legal system is that, you know, immigrants, migrants that are in immigration detention are extremely vulnerable because many of them are not connected to immigration attorneys. They don't know their legal rights. Um, few immigration attorneys are going to these detention centers that are located in remote areas like the one that, you know, where, where this uh, case occurred and informing immigrants of their rights and judges, right, um, are able to deport people excuse me, just based on the information that they have. And when there is no immigration attorney, there is no person to push back against the um, the state and their claims around a particular legitimacy or not of um, someone's immigration claim. So I think that that's also an important component because do the, did these women um, that, you know, experienced forced sterilization, did they have a legitimate case? Completely, 100%. Um, this would have to go through their immigration attorney and their immigration attorney would have to work their case. But unfortunately, there is no immigration attorney that was assigned to them um, because we have an immigration system where you as an immigrant are responsible for having your own immigration, your own lawyer, even in these instances where, you know, criminal negligence, right, has occurred, like for sterilization. Um, so, I think it's important to um, consider the ways in which our immigration legal system is, you know, it is really uh, ripe for this type of injustice because of the way that it is um, working within the, it, the legal system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what people don't understand or we can often forget is that this system was created in this way. So what is happening is not you know, quote unquote, illegal. This is just a function of the system itself. And it reminds me when you're thinking, when you were talking about, you know, the harm that the immigration system creates and causes, it was also making me think of, you know, another more, another recent article, um, which was about the children who have been separated from their families at the border and the fact that um, over 500 of those children, you know, have not been reunited with their families. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could talk more about obviously youth and thinking about the immigration process as well. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I, I think the one thing, one thing that we have to remember is that just that the, the the children that were separated from their families, that this is not a new phenomenon, but what was a new phenomenon was the amount of uh, the amount of children that were separated and the ways in which they were separated, right? So using criminal proceedings um, in conjunction with immigration proceedings in the moment that an individual is entering or attempting to enter the United States, um, that was a new phenomenon, right? That was a new system that was in place. But I also think <clears throat> that it's important to remember that many of these children were like infants and toddlers. Mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, are, are unable to really uh, speak about their parents, are unable to do this type of advocacy. Um, and that is that presents a, a, a unique set of challenges, right? Which is why it doesn't make sense in any way, shape or form to separate families um, at the U.S., at, at the U.S. borders, in any form of confinement or any form of detention, it just doesn't make sense. Um, I think that oftentimes, you know, families, you know, when families migrate, they're choosing to migrate together because that is the best. That is the best way for them to be able to stay together, right? Um, and so, separating families at the at the border just it it um, will contribute. We will see more of this, right? So it is not. It is unfortunate that, you know, it has taken us this long, um, us meaning the United States, this long to, to recognize the harm, the irreparable harm that has happened as a result of, you know, this policy that happened about three years ago. Um, but I think that what is what is even sadder is that people at the moment were saying that this would occur and that there was a belief that the immigration legal system would be able to reunify families. And we just see that that is not true, right? So these 500 children that have been separated um, and where they cannot find their families, they cannot find their parents, right? That this is just proof of the, you know, of the ways in which immigration advocates and immigration lawyers have been calling on the immigration legal system to prevent these types of um to to end these types of policies so that this doesn't occur to get occur again because the immigration legal system is already a system that uh, is terrible uh, and will produce terrible outcomes but i think that when these types of policies um are you know uh, are are used with immigrant families you know we're oftentimes uh, forgetting that these that these experiences are going to um, that these experiences are going to exacerbate what's already a challenging and difficult um, system that you know people are already navigating which brings us to talking about unaccompanied minors because um, you know unaccompanied minors are youth that have entered their entered the United States without a parent or guardian um, and you know there are a variety of reasons why that happens. One of them is that, you know, youth have made the decision to migrate on their own. Mm -hmm. um, but, but sometimes what happens, and this happened in a couple of, uh, of with a couple of youth that I, um, that I uh, interviewed was that, you know, they were crossing with their family and they were separated, uh, you know, as they were, um, trying to enter the United States. And so, you know, they were able to reunify with their parent, you know, soon after, but that, you know, that the system, you know, that the immigration legal system, you know, wasn't capable in that moment of reunifying these families, um, even though, you know, they were detained around the same time in around the same area, there was just no system for them to be reunified. And many of these youth talked about the ways in which they did say, you know, I, I, I did, you know, I was with my parent, like, I don't know where my parent is, my parent is not here, can you help me find my parent? Um, so that is also, you know, a function of the immigration system as that is so large, that is extremely difficult to reunify. Like we oftentimes think 
you know, that these systems and these bureaucracies would be able to find a way to reunify, but it's not like TV. It's not like the movies. It's extremely difficult. The bureaucratic system is slow. It moves very slowly. Um, and it is extremely difficult for, you know, that isn't, that is not the purpose of the immigration legal system is not to try and reunify. It's really to detain and to manage and to discipline migrants. And so I think that if we take on that perspective, we understand why it would be so challenging to reunify families, you know, even if they're, um, you know, even if they were detained around the same time in around the same place, we would still experience these challenges and these difficulties. Um, and I think that one thing that happens with unaccompanied minors is that they are really, they were able, very extremely successful in navigating the immigration detention system. But I think that there's also, you know, uh, an, a large amount of resources that were used in, you know, during the unaccompanied minor period to ensure that youth had, um, you know, access to more resources than maybe their adult counterparts would. So for example, in San Francisco, where I conducted my research, there were more, there was more funding, there was more resources available to unaccompanied minors than there were to even, um, you know, families that migrated with children, because unaccompanied minors <clears throat> are perceived as extremely vulnerable, because they don't have parents, they don't have these adult advocates to be able to you know, fight for them. And so a lot of um, institutions were um, opening up more spaces in their rosters or in their immigration um, legal cases to be able to take on um, more unaccompanied minor cases. Now, I'm saying that while also noting that for many, many unaccompanied minors, they were unable um, to obtain any type of legal representation and that it became extremely difficult, you know, as time wore on for for minors, for unaccompanied minors to get any form of legal representation, right? And so this just highlights the, the real need of immigration legal representation, um, especially for unaccompanied minors, but also for the system writ large, right? Because right now, so many people go through the immigration legal system, and they are pro per, meaning that they are representing themselves. And they are oftentimes, you know, they don't know the law, they don't know the system, they don't know the, you know, ways in which they have to prepare their case or what evidence they have to provide. Um, and then that means that their case is not strong. And, you know, they may have a legitimate case, they may meet all of the requirements, but they're just not presenting the information in the correct way, and their case will get denied and they'll go through deportation proceedings. So um, I just, you know, I, I always think about that, that there's so many unaccompanied minors that were deported during the time that I was conducting my study because they ha didn't have legal representation. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, it's so complicated as you've shared with us today. I mean, the entire process of immigration, immigration adjustment, and just thinking about the immigration legal system overall, it's way more complex than this very simple, oversimplified idea of documented, undocumented, which is how we often think about it. Um, so thank you so much for being here with us this morning and really helping us understand some of the complexities of this system and the processes that we should be thinking about. So thank you so much again, Dr. Kati Barahona-Lopez. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me.
I have learned so much today about the immigration process and really the many complexities that are included and how far reaching we should really be thinking about immigration as well. So for today's positive note, I wanted to share a quote by Nelson Mandela, and it says, we can change the world and make it a better place. It is in your hands to make a difference. Together we can, y'all. I definitely believe that. Well, thank you again for joining me this morning on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee, and I look forward to having you back here with me next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Central.